Welcome to Van Ferndafi Legal News here on Badabach Stereo. Program is sponsored by the Witten de Voyes Brokers. Please send us your questions, your comments. Uh, Volker, that's V-O-L-K-E-R at VVD for Van Ferndafi.co.za. Got uh, Elmarie Richter lined up for you today to talk about whether someone can be sent to jail who fails to pay maintenance. Let's say, for example, the father fails to pay maintenance. Can he be sent to jail? And then uh, secondly, Ismarie McCalligan will uh, share a couple of thoughts with us on the Consumer Protection Act. I think some very uh, valuable advice that she will give us in that respect regarding uh, gym contracts. Can they be cancelled early? Can you give uh, back a car that you purchased for a refund? What about the food stewards clause? and also overbooked flights. So please uh, stay tuned for that. My name is Falker Kruger from Van Felden Duffy Attorneys. I recently read an article dealing with a maintenance issue and uh, the question as to whether someone who is obliged to pay maintenance can be sent to jail. And I asked our family law expert, Elmeri Richter, to have a look at this case and uh, maybe answer a couple of uh, questions that I would like to uh, ask her. Um, Elmeri, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Volker. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can firstly just deal with the facts uh, as far as we know what happened in this case. Yes, um, unfortunately, this matter is not reported, so I was not able to read the, the court case itself. But um, according to the information available to us, a well-known 50-year-old businessman and father failed to pay maintenance. Um, he got divorced in 2012 and the divorce order made provision for um, maintenance in respect of the two children and then spousal maintenance in respect of his ex-wife or payable to his ex-wife. So this businessman, after the maintenance order and decree of divorce was granted, then failed to pay maintenance in terms of the court order. And it was alleged that he was approximately 1.2 million rand in arrears over a period of four years. So um, the arrears are quite an extensive amount of money. So the ex-wife took him to court and she complained um, about his failure to pay maintenance. What did the court find? Well, firstly, um, I just want to mention that the businessman's defense was that he could not afford to pay the maintenance, which is something that we often see. Um, he said that he sold his businesses to his fiancée and he doesn't earn a, a big salary anymore. So the court considered his financial circumstances, but they, however, rejected his claim that he cannot financially afford to pay the maintenance. So the court said that he did not even attempt to pay maintenance or even a small amount of money that he thought he can afford to pay. So the court was quite um, frustrated with his attitude towards the payment of the maintenance. And he was subsequently convicted on two charges of contravening the Maintenance Act for failure to pay maintenance towards his former wife and towards the children. He was sentenced to three years in jail or imprisonment um, on each of the two accounts, but the court ordered that he had to serve four and a half years um, in total. 
So he obviously was not satisfied with the order and the sentence, and he applied um, for leave to appeal on both the conviction and the sentence. But this appeal and the application for leave to appeal was unsuccessful, and the court actually ordered that he should immediately start to serve his time in prison. So does the court actually have the authority to do so, to send someone to jail if you fail to pay the maintenance? Yes, yes, the court does have this um, power. A person who fails to make payment in accordance with a maintenance order is guilty of a criminal offence and is liable on conviction to either a fine or imprisonment. And this um, is properly set out in the Maintenance Act itself as well. Um, we also often see courts granting a suspended sentence. And this is a bit more desirable because we all know if someone's in prison, they will not be able to earn an income during that time. And then actually it defeats the purpose of complaining to receive money for maintenance because you actually want money in maintenance. You don't necessarily want someone to sit behind bars. So a suspended sentence is then a bit more ideal. In most circumstances, and we often see it in court, the court will um, grant an order and a sentence in roundabout say that, okay, you are convicted to 60 days imprisonment, 50 days of which are uh, suspended on the condition that the accused for pay the arrear maintenance and um, does not have a similar does not be convicted of a similar offence or whatever. So that suspensive um, sentence is something that we see a bit more often in court. But um, lately, our courts are taking parents failing to pay maintenance, this failure, the courts are taking very seriously. And um, the, the courts actually no longer tolerating poor excuses for the failure to pay maintenance. And I think this matter is a perfect example of the court just being tired of people having excuses um, and failing to pay maintenance. And the court are actually starting to um, act a bit more strict and, and granting orders like this, sending someone to prison for failing to pay maintenance. Yeah, so even if the person is in jail and can therefore not earn any income and therefore cannot afford to pay any um uh, maintenance in the future, and that might sort of uh, defeat the purpose. On the other hand, there needs to be a deterrent. Eh? And I guess that's yes. what the court is saying with this judgment. Uh, you can't just keep on ignoring your obligation to pay maintenance. You're going to go to jail. Yes, that's um, correct. Yeah. So, so what would your advice be to someone who cannot afford to pay the maintenance that he or she is ordered to pay? Well, it's very important that if a person can no longer afford to pay maintenance, he or she must go to the maintenance court immediately and on an urgent basis and apply that the maintenance payments be reduced or be stopped. With both these options, the court will consider the financial circumstances of the person. And also, it's important to note that you must be able to prove an inability to pay. You cannot merely make the allegation that you can no longer afford maintenance. Your financial circumstances must actually indicate that there's an inability to pay. But after, if 
if the court considered your financial circumstances and if they are satisfied that you can actually no longer afford to pay this amount of money, the court will reduce the maintenance to reflect a more affordable amount or the court will stop the maintenance for either a certain period or indefinitely. So the court really um, look after both parties in maintenance matter. It's not only the person who needs to receive the maintenance that the court looks after. The court will consider your circumstances if you can no longer afford to pay. And what's important is if you follow this process, like I mentioned, um, that person will, in most circumstances, avoid conviction or imprisonment. How much was this man ordered to pay? Is that clear from the reports? What was the monthly amount? You, you mentioned that he was in arrears with 1.2 million about. 1.2 million, and that was in respect of both the spousal maintenance and the children's maintenance. Um, I couldn't get more information as to the monthly payment that he had to make in respect of the two separate maintenance orders, but um, I'm not sure, yes. So let's say it's 80,000 per month or whatever the amount might be, then the message is if you can't afford to pay that then it doesn't mean that you then shouldn't pay at all. Then you should approach the court and ask for it to be reduced to yes. or whatever you can uh, prove you can only afford. And yes, then that's the correct. court will be um, lenient and will understand your circumstances if you can prove them and uh, order the reduced amount. But if you simply ignore like this man uh, apparently did, then you're in trouble. Yes, 100% correct. Okay, and maybe one final question: If you question if you're entitled to the the maintenance and uh, the person obliged to pay fails to do so, uh, for example, the spouse or the the parent or whatever, what would your advice then be? My advice would be to immediately approach the maintenance court. There's always that option of requesting payment from the person before going to court. It's always ideal as well, but in most circumstances. Most circumstances, their demands are ignored. So that person should then go to the maintenance court and um, request that effect be given to the orders. For example, the court will order a warrant of execution will be issued. Then you can go and sell the movable assets of the person owing you the um, maintenance payments, the person who's in arrears. So there's that execution steps. The court can also, for example, attach emoluments to our um, listeners. It might be a bit more known if we, we refer to garnishy orders that often is granted by the courts. And then the court will also, in in a lot of circumstances, attach incoming debt or pension fund monies. And um, all these remedies available, you can um, you can approach the maintenance court in your area where you reside. You don't necessarily need an attorney to assist you, so you don't need a lot of money to be able to give effect to a maintenance order, which is important. And this remedy is available, will assist you um, to ensure that you actually do receive the area maintenance and the future maintenance payable. And where would one find the maintenance court? It's it's typically in the magistrate's court, no? at the same yes. place. It's at the same place. There will just be a different area in the court or an allocated magistrate to hear the maintenance matters. But it's also, it's a bit more informal and it's open to public. So the court is um, is more than willing to assist the public members with this matters as well. All right. Thank you, Emily. I think that's some good advice. Thank you, Volker. My name is Volker Kruger. I have Ismary McKelligan from Fafel Duffy here with me to discuss a couple of uh, issues related to the Consumer Protection Act. 
Uh, hi, uh, Ismari. Hello, Fulke. Yeah, so let's get right into it. Uh, first question is, can I cancel my two-year gym contract early? Uh, I've decided that I don't want to go to the gym anymore. Uh, I have uh, some found something else to do now. Or it's too expensive. I can't afford it. Whatever the case might be, can I now just cancel the agreement? That's a good question, Fulker, because a lot of people are struggling with this situation where they want to cancel their gym membership. And then uh, more often than not, the gym will tell them that they would have to either pay a very high cancellation penalty or they would have to pay for the remainder of the term. So the Consumer Protection Act actually says that, that a consumer can cancel any fixed term contract with a written notice to the supplier, which would be the gym in this case, um, as long as 20 business days notice is given. Uh, that notice, as I mentioned, should either be in writing or in a recorded manner. For example, uh, if you call them and they um, record the call. Um, if you then cancel the agreement, you are, of course, still liable for any fees that's due to the gym up until date of cancellation. And the Act also provides that the gym can charge you a reasonable cancellation penalty. Now, reasonable is a very subjective term to use because what is reasonable for the gym will certainly not be reasonable for the consumer. But Regulation 5 of the Consumer Protection Act's regulation give a list of factors that you can take into account when considering what would be a reasonable penalty. For example, um, how many months of your contract is left? Um, what was the value of the contract in total? How much money have they made out of you? how much money are they losing um, also things like um, what is the likelihood of the gym uh, replacing the consumer and getting someone else in their place um, so I read a decision of the tribunal for example where the gym wanted a cancellation penalty which constituted 50% of whatever is left on their term and the tribunal said no that is not reasonable that was an amount of 5,000 rand for example and ultimately the tribunal found that only an amount of 1,000 rand would be um, reasonable and that 1,000 rand included about 700 rand in arrear fees um, so you really cannot charge people an exorbitant amount of money as a reasonable cancellation penalty I think a good guideline depending on what type of contract it is and again, how many months are left is maybe one to two months uh, membership fee. That might be a reasonable cancellation penalty. Okay, so irrespective of what the agreement stipulates, there's help for a consumer uh, yes. in such a situation. He can then cancel early subject, as you said now, to that um, penalty that he has to pay. All right, yes. my next one, um, buyer's remorse. I guess a lot of... Uh, Listeners have had that experience. Let's say, for example, you buy a car and you regret purchasing that vehicle. It's too expensive. Um, or, for example, the fan of the car is giving you some problems. Can you then cancel the purchase and uh, get a refund? Is there help in the Consumer Protection Act? 
There is certainly help in the Consumer Protection Act. Your one option is that you have a five-day cooling-off period. That is usually in relation to any direct marketing. Um, but I also know for certain that a lot of the um, vehicle finance contracts of the banks will in any event give you a five- to seven-day cooling-off period within which you can cancel it. So Even if you there have, was no direct marketing, no? so that clause yes. caters for such a right to cancel yeah. Yes. The other option is, as you mentioned, for example, the fan is not working. Um, you have a six-month implied warranty in anything that you buy um, where the Consumer Protection Act would be applicable, regardless of whether the supplier has given you uh, a warranty or not. Uh, regardless of whether they specifically say they give you no warranty, you still have a six-month warranty that the Consumer Protection Act affords you. So within that six months, you can take the vehicle back and the Consumer Protection Act also says that the consumer has a choice of remedies. The one option is to request a refund. The other option is to request that they simply repair it. And the other option is to request that they replace it. The choice is the consumer's. The supplier cannot make you uh, pick only one option. For example, they cannot tell you, uh, no, sorry, we don't do refunds, we only do repairs, etc. The choice is that of the consumer. But that being said, uh, we must again also consider the factor of reasonableness. Um, if, for example, only something small on the vehicle is broken, such as a fan or maybe a light bulb or a mirror or something, it would not be reasonable to request that the entire transaction be reversed, especially with something like a car where there's finance available and registration papers and things. The more reasonable option would be to request a that it be repaired or that it be replaced, not the entire car be replaced, but that the mirror be replaced, etc. So even though the consumer has a choice of remedies, um, you must still be reasonable when it comes to um, choosing a remedy. It's unlikely that either the court or the tribunal um, would give you a refund on a vehicle if only something small was wrong with it. And I guess that's a factual question, eh? whether it's small or, or not. Yeah, But uh, yeah, a fan that doesn't work properly, that can be fixed fairly easily, I guess that's not good enough. Now you can't then just cancel. But if it's within the six months period, irrespective of what the agreement says, you can force the supplier to fix that problem. No? Yes, yes, for certain. And within the five days, irrespective of whether there's a problem or not, if that is the cooling off period, you can then indeed cancel. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, food stewards clause. Uh, does the Consumer Protection Act make a difference to that uh, provision, which is often in a sale agreement, food stewards clause, uh, means uh, you're selling something as it is. No? In other words, if there's a defect, uh, uh, the, the purchaser as a general rule cannot claim anything from the seller if, uh, if there is such a problem. Uh, but does the Act also make a difference to that legal position? Yes, certainly. The Act um, treats latent and patent defects in the same manner. Um, so uh, the six-month implied warranty that I mentioned when we discussed the cause is typically where this food stewards clause comes in. So regardless of whether someone sells you something food stewards, you will still have 
that six months implied warranty at the very least, whether it's a latent or a patent defect. The only time that your warranty will lapse or will not be effective is in one of two situations. The one is where uh, the consumer altered the product after they purchased it, contrary to any instructions from the supplier. And the other option is for a supplier to get around the food stewards or the implied warranty issue is if you buy something and the supplier expressly tells you in what condition it is and expressly tells you what is wrong with, for example, a vehicle, and you then uh, accept it with its mistakes. But you cannot just have a general food stewards clause um, to get around the warranty. They would have to specifically tell you this vehicle is sold secondhand, the fan is broken, the window is broken, uh, the locks are not working, and you then expressly accept those defects. Then you cannot later claim um, that you have a warranty and that they should repair it. That's the only way a supplier can then get around that warranty period. Okay, so that's maybe some advice for any supplier that wants to make sure that you cannot be held liable for latent defects. So even if you're selling a house as, for example, a developer or someone mm -hmm. who speculates you know, with property, which would mean that it would be subject to the Consumer Protection Act, I would believe, then you could add a clause where the purchaser specifically, for example, accepts that he's aware of the cracks in the, in the wall or he's aware of the problems with the foundation or he's aware of the problems with the swimming pool pump or whatever the case might be. And if he specifically accepts those defects as part of the transaction, then uh, he cannot later complain despite the Consumer Protection Act. Uh, would you yes. agree with that? Yes, I would agree. Uh, good advice would be to let the parties do sort of like an inspection like they do with rental properties and list any defects and uh, let the consumer sign next to it that they expressly are made aware of it and accept it as is. Okay. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, sale of a house as such where you're just selling the house, for example, where you live in, whether it's not part of your business, would not be subject to the Consumer Protection Act, no? because then you're not supplying goods or services as uh, part of your, your business as such. And in such a case, I think you can still include the general food stewards clause, which yes. would be, uh, as a rule, enforceable against the purchaser. Yes, you're correct. When you're selling anything and the, uh, you want the Consumer Protection Act to be applicable, um, that sale has to be within the ordinary course of business for the supplier. Overbooked flights. Uh, I suppose all our listeners have heard about it or maybe even experienced it. Airlines, uh, obviously, to make sure that their flights are full, often do that. Uh, what rights does the consumer have in that respect? Uh, well, if the consumer suffers any damage, for example, they purchase the ticket and now the flight is overbooked and they, they can't get on that flight, uh, the Consumer Protection Act provides that the airline must then refund you your ticket plus interest at the prescribed rate from the date that you purchased the ticket up until the date when you get the refund. And they must also compensate the consumer for any cost that they incur that's incidental to this overbooking. For example, if the consumer now has to book a different flight that is more expensive, or if they have to sleep over at a nearby hotel, all those type of uh, costs they have to 
compensate you for. Uh, any de defenses that the airline might have where they would not have to um, refund you or compensate you for something like this is if they offered you a reasonable alternative at no charge to you and you accepted it, then you can't claim a refund of the first ticket or if they offered you a reasonable alternative and you simply refused to accept it and your refusal is without good grounds or is an unreasonable refusal, then you can't claim protection under the Consumer Protection Act. So um, although I think the golden rule here is although the Consumer Protection Act gives a lot of protection to consumers, which we certainly need it, um, it is still a two-way street. The consumer also has to act reasonable in all circumstances. Okay. All right. Thank you. Some valuable advice uh, for consumers. Uh, Ismari. All right. Thank you, Volker. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.